Knuckles in a fruit fight Every color of day Whirling around at night I'm playing this music So the young girls will come out To meet the monster tonight Well, there goes the neighborhood. Good morning, everybody. On this Saturday, April 6th, 2013, to the 418th edition of Dave's Gone By. Three hours of humor, talk, music, interviews, all sorts of fun stuff that we've been doing for more than 10 years, initially in New York, and now for the past couple of years at this wonderful radio station, UNC Radio at the University of Northern Colorado. I'm Dave Lefkowitz, the host and producer of Dave's Gone By, and I have produced a marvelous show for you today. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm guessing, all hosts of these kinds of shows, be they late-night talk shows or, or whatever, they say, it's going to be a great show, it's going to be a fabulous show, don't miss it. Well, I totally mean it this time. I usually mean it, but boy... Check out what's going to be on this episode of Dave's Gone By. First of all, we're going to have our beloved Rabbi Saul Solomon, the founder and spiritual leader of Temple Sons of Bitches in Great Neck, New York. Rabbi Saul, a, uh, a, I wouldn't say he's a beloved figure around these parts, but he's certainly becoming a known figure in, uh, in this area because he developed his one-man show here, Shalom Dammit, which was done at UNC, and then he brought it to New York, and now hopefully he's going to be bringing it back to Weld County in the next couple of weeks. And so Rabbi Saul, we're, we're really proud that he's been with this program since our very first episode back in 2002, and he's still with us. Not only does he give us a weekly rabbinical reflection, which is kind of his own mini-sermon, and he will be paying a fond tribute to the late movie critic Roger Ebert on his sermon later this morning, but also Rabbi Saul is going to usher in the baseball season, just starting a couple of days ago, and, and the spring season, and the get out your, your grills season with an interview of uh, the vice president in charge of public affairs at the American Meat Institute. Did you know that there was an American Meat Institute Yes, folks, there is. We're going to find out all about it because Rabbi Saul is going to be asking him tons of questions about hot dogs and burgers and meat versus vegetarian and kosher versus non-kosher. He may even slip in a question about uh, the greatest invention since the wheel, notably, of course, the, the happy hot dog man. What? What? You've never heard of the happy hot dog man? Let me... Um, let me enlighten you. In case, in case you don't have late-night television, this is not a joke, folks. This, this is an actual item. And oh, let, me, let me roll this up on our iTunes. Imagine you're watching TV. You're watching whatever you... NCIS or CSI or Matlock or you know, the exercise infomercials with uh, Chuck Norris. And suddenly on comes an ad for... A way, <clears throat> excuse me, a way to make frankfurters more fun, more enjoyable than frankfurters already are, more interesting, more amusing. Because you know, despite their phallic shape, after you get over all the penis jokes, how 
How fun are hot dogs really? Well, folks, let me tell you, or, or let this advertisement tell you about the happy hot dog man. Hot dogs, they're as American as baseball and apple pie. But what makes a hot dog more than just a hot dog? Introducing the Happy Hot Dog Man. It brings ordinary hot dogs to life, making lunchtime more fun. Just put your hot dog into the Happy Hot Dog Man and close the lids. The Happy Hot Dog Man makes a happy imprint on your hot dog. Now you're ready to cook it into a fun Happy Hot Dog Man figure that can be decorated and eaten. It's like a toy you can eat. Classic dogs, beef dogs, turkey dogs, veggie dogs, the Happy Hot Dog man does them all. You can make them into little like girls or boys and decorate them in clothes and everything. Add ketchup, mustard, relish, cheese. Make them any way you please. The Happy Hot Dog Man is so easy to use, kids can do it. Happy Hot Dog Man is awesome. Take your family's food from boring to scoring. Make it a game to dress your dog the best and vote which one is the wiener. We all end up acting like kids at dinner. Make your dinner a wiener with the Happy Hot Dog Man. You can get the Happy Hot Dog Man in red for $10.99. And we'll send you the Happy Hot Dog Man in yellow free. You can find out about free shipping when you upgrade your order. And we'll double the offer to four Happy Hot Dog Men. And we'll also include a bonus ketchup critter and mustard monster. Pay separate $6.99 processing fee. They attach to your existing bottles and make decorating your Happy Hot Dog Man even more fun. You can get it all. Four Happy Hot Dog Men plus the ketchup critter and Mustard Monster, all for $10.99. And remember, you can find out about free shipping when you upgrade your order. We love Happy Hot Dog Man! Yes. Okay, again, not a joke. That was a real infomercial about a year or so ago. I mean, it's been replaced in all our co- collective memories now by the Waxfac guy. Isn't he wonderful? And I, I promise you, folks, I have been looking. I've been trying to find out on the Internet who the actor is in the Waxback commercial, because I would love to approach his agent and, and try and get him on the show. But um, it's amazing how little information there is about him. The actress is out there. Um, you know, the, the mother who's, who's candling the guy's ear in the Waxback commercial, she's around. And, and, you know, you can get her resume and everything. <laughs> she's like, please, hire me for something else. Uh, but, but the guy playing, and there's like 10 different websites that are asking who is the wax fat guy who screams ow? Who is he? You know, where? And you look at these websites and it's just people asking the question, but nobody with an answer. So if anybody has that answer, I, w- I would love to know. But what I'm saying is, before anybody had even heard of the wax ear vacuum, um, there was the Happy Hot Dog Man. It was this plastic contraption where you put, as they said, you put the hot dog in the plastic you press it down, and the way that the thing is cut with the plastic, you would then lift up the plastic top, and there would be slits all along the hot dog. You would pull the, you would pull your wiener out. Sorry, and if you you wiggled it and stuff, it had arms and legs and a little face and smile. And of course, as my wife pointed out, and and anyone with a brain could point out, really you can do the same thing by just taking a knife and you know, slicking little eyes and a nose and little arm things, and you don't have to actually put them in a plastic. It's about as easy as doing it with a knife and easier to clean. But still, you know, what a, what a crazy, genius, stupid idea of the Happy Hot Dog Man, followed, of course, by the ketchup, the ketchup critter 
and the mustard monster, the uh, ketchup critter it would have the ketchup shooting out of the mouth of this gargoyle. And the, the mustard monster is beautiful, man. It comes out of his nose. So it looks like it's pouring snot <laughs> all over your hamburger. Beautiful items, as, as the, the kid says in the commercial. It's like a toy you can eat. Yes. Yes, it is. So, so I never got to do really anything about the Happy Hot Dog Man way back, but now it is meat time. It's time for burgers on the grill. It's time for, you know, baseball, uh, what is it, apple pie? Fr- well, they don't actually mention hot dogs. In that, but, it, but come on, it's, it's that time of year. Let's celebrate that by Rabbi Sal Solomon interviewing Eric Mittenfall, Vice President of the American Meat Institute. That's coming up in probably less than an hour from now. Also, as I, I think I mentioned, Rabbi Saul will be here with his rabbinical reflection on the passing of movie critic Roger Ebert. We will go inside Broadway for news of the Rialto. What's happening in Broadway theater? This is the crunch time. This is the time of year when all the shows are opening to make sure they, uh, they're in for this year's Tony Awards consideration. So just two more weeks of the season and it's over, you know, or three more weeks from, from now. So everything's happening. I'll be talking about that. Also, um, a bit more about my trip two weeks ago to Indianapolis where I saw a bunch of theater with the American Theater Critics Association. And I'll be reviewing a couple of shows briefly that I saw while I was there, including the very celebrated play The Whipping Man, and uh, a funky version of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, as well as a concert by Michael Feinstein and Barbara Cook. So all of that ahead on Inside Broadway, plus Bob Dylan, sooner and later, our weekly Bob Dylan segment, we play a couple of his songs that um, are from different times of his career, from the earliest recordings all the way up through Tempest. And today... In honor of Eric Mittenfall, we'll play songs that somehow or other mention meat. Yep, it's, it's, it's a meet and greet episode of Dave's Gone By. And we will have also Saturday segues. In fact, we'll have birthday tributes to the late Tiny Tim and the great Tom Lehrer on a birthday tribute later in the show. And starting the show off right now, it's some... Um, 10, 11 in the morning, our first Saturday segue will be a tribute to the late producer and musician and engineer Phil Ramone. He was uh, born January 5th, 1934, and he passed March 30th. I think that was last Saturday. I got the news as I got home after doing my show last week, so I couldn't obviously do anything last week. But um, according to, I guess this is the wiki bio of him. He was started as a violinist. He was something of a prodigy. And way back in 1958, he founded a small recording studio on West 48th Street above what was a music store. The studio then grew into several studios and a recording uh, producing company. He is a legend. I didn't realize he was born in South Africa, but he grew up in Brooklyn. Yay! Um, and what else? What else? Did he, went, did he go to Juilliard? He trained as a classical violinist at Juilliard, and um, he opened that first recording studio before he was even 20 years old and became a nationalized American citizen in 1953. Anyway, the main thing about Phil Ramone was he was one of the big star producers. I mean, after Phil Spector, he's really one of the best-known people who's behind the board. And you look at the album credits, and 
Although he started and, and, and was doing stuff all the way with Leslie Gore in the 1960s, I think it was the Billy Joel era that really marked him and made his name not as important as the rock artist playing on the, on the disc, but you know it was there in big letters, produced by Phil Ramone, co-produced or engineered by. And so we'll be hearing some Billy Joel and some Paul Simon and some, some less expected stuff that Phil Ramone had a hand in bringing to the world. So why don't we begin with, um, well, a nice little morning song, one that I was kind of surprised. I actually, we were eating at the Egg and I a couple of days ago, and they've got a really nice radio station on. I think it's either one of these specialized restaurant radio stations, or it might have been a Sirius XM thing. But they, they play really nice music there. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing a commercial for them. I'm just saying I notice these things. So, oddly enough, and they play deep tracks, like, you know, the fourth cut on the second side of a Joni Mitchell CD. So they played this opening track off a Gordon Lightfoot record that I hadn't heard in years. I really like this record, too. So here is Gordon Lightfoot with uh, a song called Minstrel of the Dawn that Phil Ramone was involved with, either producing or engineering. Enjoy our Saturday Segway tribute to Phil Ramone. The minstrel of the dawn is here to make you laugh and bend your ear. Up the steps you'll hear him climb, all full of thoughts, all full of rhymes. Listen to the pictures flow across the room into your mind they go. Listen to the strings They jangle and dangle While the old guitar rings The minstrel of the dawn is he Not too wise but also free He'll talk the life out on the street He'll play it sad and say it sweet Look into Shining face of loneliness, you'll always find a trace. Just like me and you, he's trying to get into things more happy than blue. Minstrel of the changing tide You'll ask for nothing but his pride Just sit him down upon that chair Go fetch some wine and set it there Listen to the pictures flow And follow the fingers where they go Listen to the strings They jangle and dangle While the old guitar rings Minstrel of the dawn is near Just like a step and fetch it here He's like an old-time troubadour Just wanting life and nothing more Look into his shining eyes And if you see a ghost, don't be surprised Like me and you He's trying to get into things More happy than blue the minstrel boy will understand He holds a promise in his hand 
talks of better days ahead And by his words your fortune's raised Listen to the pictures flow across the room Into your mind they go Listen to the strings They jangle and dangle While the old guitar rings The minstrel of the dawn is gone I hope he'll call before too long And if you meet him you must be The victim of this minstrel scene Sing for you a song, minstrel of the dawn. Bad 
with all its far out schemes, let's time decide what it should mean. It's not the time, but just the dreams that die. And sometimes when the room is still, time with so much truth to kill leaves you by the window sill so tight. Without a way, without a way to take you high, take you high, without a clue.
never stop, really stop and take a look. Take a look, a really good look at yourself. I just took a peek, really peek to tell the truth. Through my eyes, I don't look so good to myself. And my dreams will take me far, very far. A cover is not the whole book. Heaven's biggest life, they say, but they're gonna see how wrong they are someday.
I only need to feel your living in my heart And I'll be strong I love you just the way I've loved you all along And it's so hard to say goodbye When there's so much that's left unspoken in your eyes But unless I spread my wings again I'm afraid I'll never soar So kiss me for the last time And hold me close once more Death is no dream 
Shop for love in a bargain store And you don't get what you bargained for Can you get your money back? If an empty train in a railroad station Calls you to its destination Can you choose another track? Will I wake up from these violent dreams With my hair as white as the morning Quiet farewell there to the late producer and engineer Phil Ramone, who died last Saturday, March 30th, 2000, and 
13. And, I mean, that is just a little sprinkling, um, the barest handful of artists and albums and songs that Phil Ramone was involved in, in, gosh, a, a career that spanned, let's see, from the late 1950s all the way up through you know, just a couple of months ago. And so, just to, um, to give you a little idea of the breadth of Phil Ramone's work, we did that Saturday segue to begin Dave's Gone By. So we started up top with Gordon Lightfoot and The Minstrel of the Dawn. Really, really, I forget the name of the album that that is originally on. It's also on his greatest hits collection, which I have. But uh, definitely seek that whole record out. Very well worth hearing. Also, um, really, Phil Ramone's first hit that he worked on was It's My Party, the Leslie Gore song. And he did a, a bunch of other things with her, including You Don't Own Me the track that we played from Ms. Gore, followed by Phoebe Snow, uh, the album that really launched her and, and the one really big hit of her career, Poetry Man. That was followed by Peter, Paul, and Mary. Phil Ramone had a long association with that trio, and they were doing the uh, Eric Anderson tune, Rolling Home. That was followed by one of two Paul Simon tracks, that we played. That was Take Me to the Mardi Gras. I believe that's from There Goes Ryman Simon. And, well, he, Phil Ramone figures in uh, Paul Simon's work for a few years as well. And then, of course, the really the artist that put Ramone on the map in a very big way, Billy Joel. I mean, when that Stranger album came out, Phil Ramone had his fingerprints all over it, literally, and it was just the hugest album of the time, really of that era in some ways. And so we played only The Good Die Young. And, uh, well, Ramon didn't die that young, but uh, he could have you know, packed on a few more years. Would have been nice. But especially since he was still very active and still producing and still had a lot more to contribute. Following Billy Joel, we heard the band doing a live version of Rag Mama Rag. That's um, from an album that Ramon helped produce. I'm looking for it. It is, of course, the band's live album. Can I find it? Yes, Rock of Ages. And that was followed by two of the theater songs. Phil Ramone didn't do a whole hell of a lot of cast albums, but he did a couple. He did the 1968 Broadway cast of Promises, Promises, and it was Jerry Orbach singing Half as Big as Life. And then so many years later, in 2003, he did that big schmaltzy number with Hugh Jackman singing from The Boy from Oz doing the Peter Allen song Once Before I Go. Getting a little bit maudlin here for uh, for the late Phil Ramone. Followed by the big Sinead O'Connor flop album that she did. We all know she did those two amazing first records. And then she did that album of cover versions called Am I Not Your Girl with songs like don't Cry For Me, Argentina, and theater songs, and American Standards, and just nobody... It it put her career almost as much in the toilet as ripping a picture of the Pope up did when she was on Saturday Night Live. But, uh, you know, it's a quiet little song there called Gloomy Sunday from that record. And yes, Phil Ramone was on that Sinead O'Connor album. Ramone did a lot, to to be fair, to be honest, he did a lot of kind of -of middle-of-the-road, schmaltzy-ish stuff and kitschy stuff in the 70s, 80s, the, the Streisandy things and the, the film soundtrack stuff, too, that I'm not as crazy about. But, again, one of his most recent projects we just closed with, Paul Simon's most uh, 
latest record, which was called So Beautiful or So What? Questions for the Angels, which is a rather apt song and title to go out with for this Saturday segue of songs devoted and dedicated and created partially by the late Phil Ramone. I'm Dave Lefkowitz. It's 10.57 in the morning here, Mountain Time, at the University of Northern Colorado, here on uncradio.com. That's where you can listen to us. Also, if you're in the dorms, we're on Channel 3 on your dorm room TVs. And I just want to remind you, to find out more about this program, go to davesgoneby.com. That includes... Um, the archives, free to listen to at any time. You can download them as podcasts or just listen to them, stream them on your computer or on your hard drive. Go to davesgoneby.com and virtually every episode that we have ever done, all 417 previous episodes of this show, uh, minus five or six because of technical difficulties, they're all there. You can click, you can listen, you can zip through them. And what's also very, very cool and this is a very recent thing, was I would always get these questions of like, well, why don't you have so-and-so on your show as a guest? And I'd be like, well, we did, you know, four years ago, whatever. And they don't go scrolling back through the archives of the shows. Or, or people who even know that a guest has been on the program, but they don't want to go wading through an hour and a half or a three-hour episode of the, the show. They'll say, well, do you just have the interview? And up until a few weeks ago, I would have to say, no, you just go to the old show and you pan and scan and you find where the interview is. But I thought, you know, I want to bring this show to an even wider audience. I mean, we're all over the World Wide Web. Anybody can listen. But I want to bring more attention to it. And so it just finally occurred to me and dawned on me that let's get the stuff even more out there. So we began putting the interviews that we've done on this show separately on the website, on davesgoneby.com, and also on YouTube. They're not visual. I mean, there's just it's a radio-audio interview, but at least you can go to YouTube, see the audio, listen there. Uh, the only bad part is when we have a musical guest, then we have to cut the songs out when we put them on YouTube because we don't have proprietary rights for the music. We're not paying ASCAP or BMI or Columbia Records or what have you. But if you just want the, the spoken stuff, me talking to whatever famous celebrity or Rabbi Sal Solomon interviewing somebody, you can start to go now on YouTube and find all these dozens and dozens of interviews that we've done. And I'm, I'm very proud to say that we have now virtually every guest interview that we've done from 2008 on. So we're just starting to get the 2007s done. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of um, you know pulling out things and cutting them and um, you know doing what's I can't even think of the audacity is is the program that we're using and then reposting them and sending them to you. It's a lot of of time and arduous effort, but hopefully worth it. And the very fact that now I would say about 150 or so interviews that we've done on the program are available on YouTube. Just look for Dave's Gone By. Go to the Dave's Gone By channel on YouTube or, or just Google search, and that's an easy way to do it too. And you will see people, oh my God, it, it still amazes me when I see the roster of folks 
who've appeared on the show, everyone from Judy Collins to outsider artist Art Paul Schlosser to Uncle Floyd to, oh, well, who else? I know that doesn't sound like a, a huge, but there, there, there's dozens more. There's, there's a couple of hundred more, and we're loading them on one by one by one. We've had um, Karen Mason and Frank Wildhorn and Linda Egger and Sheldon Harnick. This amazing chat I, that I had a couple of years ago with a guy who co-wrote Fiddler on the Roof. That's there. Carol Channing, of course. All these folks, Loudon Wainwright, Amy Mann, uh, Christine Lavin, Jane Sibbery. Just one after another. And I can't wait to get even further back into the archives when we have people like Joe Franklin and Tom Paxton and Neil Sedaka. Those are coming. Might take a few weeks, but those are coming. Anyway, the best way to keep apprised is A, by going to davesgoneby.com, and B, you can drop me an email, davesgoneby at aol.com, and get on our mailing list. We send out one mailer a week that lets you know what's going to be on um, the next episode and what's going to be coming up. So, and, and those are kind of fun to read, too. So go and send me an email, davesgoneby at aol.com. Okay, enough business. Let's get back to the pleasure. And uh, one of my great pleasures in this life is the theater and culture. And so every week on Dave's Gone By, we go inside Broadway for news of the theater, both in New York and in Colorado, and sometimes parts even further afield, since um, I was in Indianapolis two weeks ago, going to be talking about a couple of shows that I saw there. But first of all, let's get to the theater news of Broadway, just announced a Broadway show is going to be coming this fall, opening in mid-September. It's a revival of Romeo and Juliet, which, believe it or not, I mean, it's Romeo and Juliet, they haven't done a major Broadway Romeo and Juliet since 1987, which is almost two generations ago. David Laveau will be directing this new production at the Richard Rogers Theatre on Broadway. Dig the cast. It's Orlando Bloom, the big movie star, playing off Condola Rashad, who is Felicia Rashad's kid. Felicia, of course, from um, The Cosby Show, and Condola was in the Broadway play Stick Fly a season or two ago. Also in the cast, Joe Morton, veteran actor, and Jane Hudichel playing the nurse. So, well, you know what the plot is, duh. So, yeah, you've got a Romeo and Juliet coming to Broadway. Also, another revival that is being planned for when, 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 when. It's going to be in the next few months over... I don't know if they have all of that information yet, but Scott Rudin will be producing a revival of the Harold Pinter dark comedy drama called Betrayal. This is the one that has to do with a guy embarking on an affair, and the affair is fine, and then it doesn't go so well. And it's all told mostly in reverse chronology. So you see the affair at its very end, And then as the play goes forward, the timeline goes back until the very end of the play. Well, I don't want to give it away, but, well, you can tell. If it's reverse chronology, you can kind of figure what the first, what the last scene is. But anywho, it's it's a wonderful movie if you ever get to see it. I, I would love to see that film again. But they've tried doing it on Broadway Twice, uh, Blythe Danner made a big hit in that show when they first did it back in 1980. And then it came to the American Airlines Theater, the, uh, I guess the Roundabout, did a revival of it back in 2001 featuring Juliette Binoche. And I, I, and Liev Schreiber was in there too, as a matter of fact. The only thing I remember about that staging, it was kind of 
kind of dull, didn't really do anything for me. It was just so, so funny because the, um, the lights were going down, the, the show was just about to begin, and so the lights come up and there's Juliette Binoche, the, the French actress, sitting at a table on stage, you know, and everyone's quiet. And then some old idiot in the crowd just said, beautiful! Like, everybody had this, this panicked look and this sort of embarrassed giggle. I'm like, yes, okay, yes, she's a beautiful French woman. Thank you, thank you for sharing as the show is beginning. And the, the weird part, kind of the, the tragic part, is that is the only thing I remember about that whole revival of Betrayal. So maybe this will be a better one. This will be uh, one worth seeing because Mike Nichols will be directing Betrayal. And the cast is going to be, check this out, real-life married couple Daniel Craig of the James Bond films and Rachel Weisz. And uh, a fellow named Rafe Spall is in there too. So check it out, Betrayal, coming to Broadway this fall. Speaking of shows that are on Broadway, some very nice reviews for the new play by the late Nora Ephron. She just finished it up uh, before she passed away a few months ago. And anyway, the play's called The Lucky Guy, featuring Tom Hanks making his Broadway debut. And it's at the Broadhurst Theater. It's a limited run through mid-June, opened this past week. And the general consensus is that the play is a bit on the surface. It doesn't dig as deep as they would like it to, deeply, as, as they had hoped. But at the same time, it's got that great feel of a newsroom comedy drama. It's got energy, sizzle, the right dialogue, and Hanks is really, really good. So, so the reviews were generally, generally really, really good. Ben Brantley, the chief theater critic for the New York Times, wrote, It's not so much a fully developed play or even a persuasive character study as it is a boisterous swapping of fun anecdotes about the end of a life and the end of an era. Elise Gardner of USA Today wrote, The real star of Lucky Guy is the Manhattan of Nora Ephron's young childhood and of Mike McCallery. This is, um, I should have explained, it's a play about this Daily News scribe who wrote these columns. It was like hard-boiled Jimmy Breslin school of tabloid newspaper journalists, a fellow named Mike McCallery, who I believe won the Pulitzer Prize at one point. So anyway... Um, Elise Gardner of USA Today says that it's um, a seedy, mystical kind of place, this New York newsroom. However idealized, where men did battle in Google-free newsrooms and bonded after hours in smoke-filled bars. In the more sterile Times Square of 2013, that unlikely love story is a bracing tonic indeed. It's a very well-written review, by the way, by Elise Gardner of USA Today. I I don't usually give her enough credit, but that's that's a nicely turned phrase. And Linda Weiner of Newsday, who's been on my show a couple of times, she wrote that the, the play is raucous and moving and that Tom Hanks brings all his cumulative comforting trustworthiness to the role, because, uh, which is invaluable because Efron does not sugarcoat too many of Mike McCallery's uglier qualities. It's Lucky Guy is selling very, very well on Broadway in only a limited run at the Broadhurst Theater. And... Kinky Boots opened Thursday at the Hirschfeld Theater. I didn't really have time to look up the reviews on that. I guess I'll be talking about that a bit more next week. But Cindy Lauper of She's So Unusual and Girls Just Want to Have Fun fame wrote the songs for this adaptation of that English movie about the guy who has the shoe factory and no orders are coming in for shoes, but he meets up with his transvestite and 
she gives him he she gives him the idea to make boots for cross-dressing men because they need heavier heels. They can't wear women's shoes. They're not made well enough for, for men's weight and bearing. So he ends up doing this, and then he has to make change the whole factory around. It's a very typical kind of Billy Elliot sort of movie. Well, Cindy uh, Lauper and Harvey Firestein thought this would make a great idea for a musical, and it opened just two nights ago at the Hirschfeld Theater on Broadway, directed by Jerry Mitchell. Sorry, I just have not had a chance to, uh, to check the reviews. Opening this coming Thursday at the Schubert Theater on Broadway, it's uh, probably the most eagerly anticipated musical of the Broadway season. It's called Matilda, based on the Rolled Doll books, with a book by Dennis Kelly, and the scores by Tim Minchin. It's all about this brilliant girl who has very, very awful, evil parents. I don't really know anything more than that about it, except that it's directed by Matthew Warchus. And staying on Broadway with a little sad news, farewell to Irish actor Milo O'Shea. He was a two-time Tony Award nominee. He was in ten different Broadway shows. He died at age 86 a couple of days ago following a short illness. His... uh, Tony nods were for the 1968 play Staircase and, of course, for that very popular play Mass Appeal in 1982. He also got a Drama Desk Award nomination for that. He was in the 1994 revival of Philadelphia, Here I Come, which is a beautiful Brian Friel play. And he was in, let's see, uh, he was in Dear World. Wow, the original, uh, the Jerry Herman musical, Dear World. And then he was in the Irish Repertory Theater's Off-Broadway revival in 2004 of Finian's Rainbow. And, oh, this is where you guys were, well, we all will remember him. The Franco Zeffirelli film version of Romeo and Juliet. See how these things all tie together? Uh, he played Friar Lawrence. So if you go back and watch that, that film that really reawakened Shakespeare for a whole generation. I mean, it was silly in some spots and schmaltzy in some others, but he got, Zeffirelli got some other things perfectly right. And so Friar Lawrence played by um, Milo O'Shea in that film, and he was in Barbarella. You know, I've never seen the whole Barbarella, just uh, some clips. Anywho, he's in there, plus he did a bunch of TV shows. He is survived by his wife, actress Kitty Sullivan, whom he met while performing in My Fair Lady. He has two sons and three grandchildren, so farewell, an Irish farewell to the late Milo O'Shea. Now, wanted to let you know, moving a little ways from the, um, the theater in New York to theater in Indianapolis, because I was able to go there two weeks ago under the auspices of the American Theater Critics Association, of which I've been a member for oh, nearly 25 years Could it be? And so what we do is we all get together once or twice a year, and we spend almost a week in a certain part of the country, in in some city, seeing the theater that they have to offer and some of the other culture that they've got, maybe a, a dance recital or going to the museums, certainly, and eating in the local restaurants and the galleries. So this time we went to Indiana, specifically Indianapolis, and we um, saw, oh, I don't know, about eight shows in about four days, which is great. That's, that's what we do. And last week, I told you about a, a dinner theater production of 9 to 5 that we saw while we were there, and we also saw um, a local theater company 
doing The Lions, which is the Nikki Silver play that was on Broadway a season or two ago with Linda Lavin. And so among the other shows that we saw when we were in Indy was The Whipping Man, which is a pretty complex and almost major play by Matthew Lopez, who... um, how do, you, how do you even describe the story? Okay, you, you've got – it's just after the Civil War. So the South is in ruins, and but you know, the mansions are still sort of half-standing. And we're in this mansion where the only person still there at the moment is a slave, except he's no longer a slave. Now you've got the son of that plantation, well, of that mansion coming back. He's been in the war – and so he's really, really very badly wounded. He's got a bullet in his leg. So he crawls, almost literally, back to his home. And there he has to establish, again, some kind of relationship with someone who was his slave but is no longer. And then there are all these secrets that are coming out and pretty nasty secrets. And on top of all of that, this particular family, the southern family, happened to be Jewish. And therefore, you know, they kind of helped convert the slaves, and the slaves were Jewish too. And here it is, it's Passover, and so they're also going to hold a Seder of sorts in this abandoned, semi-abandoned mansion. And so there's all sorts of things going on. It's, it's quite gripping. Sometimes it does slide into melodrama where you're like, oh, really? And the, the revelations are, oh, well, isn't that convenient kind of thing. But it's also very dark, and it covers some, some rather ugly territory. And I was predisposed to dislike this play for a pretty simple reason. Uh, you know, I grew up with my parents telling me, especially my mom, saying that we, Jews never had to feel guilty about the Civil War and the South and slavery because Jews never owned slaves. It was not because in the Bible we escaped from Pharaoh. Now, the whole point was we don't, you don't take humans and turn them into unfree Man, it's not right. We just and so I always felt kind of good when we were learning about the South and the old Southern ways and picking cotton and plantations. There was never any shred of guilt on on my part because I knew my ancestors and my people never did it. Well, <laughs> as Matthew Lopez has apparently found out in this play, and after a little fact checking and googling, a tiny, teeny, tiny, teeny percentage of Jews were slave owners in that time, just like all their neighbors were in the South when they were trying to be just like all their other Southern neighbors. And they treated their slaves as well or as badly as their neighbors did. That was the way of the world. Now, because Jews make up such a small population to begin with, and then a very tiny fraction of those Jews own slaves to begin with, it's a teeny, weeny little number. But to say that it never happened or that you know, no Jews ever owned slaves because it was completely forbidden, that would be untrue. And so seeing this play was a, shall we say, a disconcerting eye-opener. Um, and it's also a, a good play. It keeps your attention. It was very well done at Indiana Repertory Theater. And it's, it's over now. I'm not going to spend uh, any more time on it because it closed two weeks. It closed the weekend we were seeing it, as a matter of fact. 
But if you get a chance, this is one of those shows that's going to be all over the country. They're going to be doing it in repertory theaters from now for the next year and a half. So if you get a chance to see Matthew Lopez's The Whipping Man, I do highly recommend it. We saw a couple of Indiana Fringe shows as well at a little theater that is literally called the Indie Fringe. They've got this cute little building. Um, and in a morning conference, they showed us um, two different fringe performances. One of them was called I Am Peter Pan, which is this really inventive and kind of sweet show by a, a fellow named Michael Burke. He directs some stars in it. And it's one of those one-man band kind of shows. He's got this little cart that he pulls around to tell his version of the story of Peter Pan, and it's filled with in-jokes and little quips and side and sight gags, certainly. Goes on a bit too long, you know, it's, it's about an hour, would be much better in about 45 minutes, and some parts are much more inventive than others. There's, there's stuff that he does with a mop, and does with little props, and then there are other things where like, oh, he didn't really put that much thought into this one. So, little more work, and it'll be a really, really fun show called I Am Peter Pan. Another, um, show that we saw that was co-created by the guy who organized the conference we were at was called Going, Going, Gone. And it was, as an idea goes, it is an amazingly fun idea for a theater evening and also kills like a bunch of birds with one stone. Here's, here's the premise of Going, Going, Gone. It's a, well, sort of an auction that they're holding. The patriarch of the family has died. And now they're clearing out the garage, and they're auctioning things off to the highest bidder. Well, they're doing, in some odd way, a real auction. And what they get is donations and things to this theater group, like tennis rackets and nose hair clippers and, uh, you know, VHS tapes. And they're actually auctioning them off to the audience. The audience is paid to get in, but then they get free sort of monopoly money to bid on these items. And it's, it's this, the joke of the show... And it's one joke, but it's a funny joke, but it's one joke, is that um, the daughter of this guy who died is distraught. She, it's her dad. And now they're selling all these items that have some kind of personal connection to her. And so every time something is auctioned off, she tries to bid to get it back, or she, she's dealing with the audience to try and say, please, please, I'll give you some money, you know, please let me have it. And so and, and every time they would bring out another item, she would burst into tears and go, no, I, I can't sell that. And he says, yes, we're going to sell that. So, I mean, it, it, a little of that goes a surprisingly long way. And it is a fun thing. And, and I can't believe it. Other theater companies haven't thought of it. I know this will spread like wildfire because it's it's such a great idea for a theater, man, especially if they they can maybe do it with real money and they're looking to raise dough for the theater company. You you maybe have people once in a while bid for real on items and and maybe a theater company can make some money. Anyway, that was Lou Harry co-conceived this play with John Thomas and... I mean, I I would look for it to to go places. I really would. It it was certainly quite a lot of fun. Also fun was an adaptation of Twelfth Night. I mean, the language was the same. They just updated the period to the flapper era of the 1920s. So acting up productions 
um, is, was the theater company doing it at the Wheeler Center in Fountain Square in Indianapolis. So you've got everybody in gangster garb and flapper girls and, and a little bit of uh, cross-casting. For example, Festy the Jester is played by a woman because she gets to sing a couple of Roaring Twenties-type tunes. And very nice performance also by Laura Brigman as Viola. And what, what I found really interesting about her is, I mean, you know, this is the role where she's been shipwrecked, she's found, and she wants to go find stuff, but she has to dress as a man in order to do so, and then she's got to convey um, the love letters of her master to the girl he loves, except the girl he loves falls in love with Viola because she's dressed as a man. Anyhow, it's, it's Twelfth Night. It's Shakespeare. It's Twelfth Night. The, the point is, what I found fascinating about this diminutive little red-headed actress is that I wish I knew how she does it. I mean, it's a relatively small theater, but still, um, she could talk in just seemingly normal voice. If, in other words, if I were on the radio, and instead of talking the way even I am right now, if I were to say, okay, um, I'm just talking on the radio now in this kind of voice right here, uh, the, the, the way I would sort of talk to you if we were in a quiet you know, if we were on the train together and you were sitting next to me, not even across from me, but if you were right here, and I was just uh, we were shooting the breeze but not wanting to raise our voices so that the people behind us could hear us. Somehow, she managed to do that kind of voice without breaking into a stage whisper or without seeming to do that big actor thing with our voices that we do, where, you know, it comes from the bellows and we push it out here and ah. No. Just this incredibly natural voice, and yet you could hear every word. And I don't know how she does it. None of the other actors, there were some very good actors there. They were all more in this usual, like, big, boisterous actory mode. How she does it with that voice, I wish I knew. But I, I, I'm sorry, I just found that completely fascinating. Laura Brigman in that production of Twelfth Night. There, there is, there, there's always going to be something iffy about the play itself. It always bothers me that you've got this, this wonderful heroine, you know, she's plucky, she's, she's smart, she's lovable, she's all these things, she's dressing up as this guy, and she falls in love with the, the fellow who isn't in love with her at this point, well, she's a man at this point, and, uh, she falls in love with him, and he's in love with someone else, but he, he's kind of a douche. He's not the nicest fella, and in this particular production, what's worse is he's a gangster. You know, he's, he's, he's always threatening people or calling off his thugs. And I'm like, at the end, since it's a happy ending, um, you know, she gets the man. He loves her, she loves him. But, I mean, you know, she can do better. <laughs> Does she really have to fall for this, this douchey thug? Uh, it bothers me in, in Twelfth Night to begin with, but when you're dealing with actual gangsters on stage, I'm like, uh, no. No, you know, unintentional, semi-happy ending, kind of like what happened with uh, Merchant of Venice, where you know the, the characters who all have a happy ending, you just want to see die. Anywho, last thing I want to tell you about on our trip to Indiana and Indianapolis was we did a side trip to Carmel, California, to that giant, amazing performing arts center that they had. I, t- I talked about this last week, and going to see the archives of the Michael Feinstein Great American Songbook, which was there. And while the critics were there, Michael Feinstein and Barbara Cook did their, their cabaret act. Well, I mean, a cabaret act in a, a theater that seats 2,600 people. But we went to, um, to see that and to see 
Feinstein. I, I, I've seen Feinstein on Broadway. I, I was basically seeing him way back from the very beginning when he was just a, another glorified cabaret singer. And what he's done with his career, parlaying a, couple, a good New York Times review and, and just his talent into being his own sort of brand is pretty amazing. And yeah, he got kind of knocked down last year because he lost his supper club, Feinstein's supper club, uh, closed in New York. It just couldn't make it even though, or maybe because, it was like a hundred bucks just to get in the door. So he's looking to, to get another venue, but in Indiana, he's like a god. And so he's got this great American songbook archive where they're just collecting the um, you know, records and sheet music and belongings of people who were writing in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, songs that are sung now in cabaret. And so we got to see Michael Feinstein and the kind of legendary Barbara Cook. I mean, she was in the original Broadway production of She Loves Me. She was in Candide. Um, I mean, the Barbara Cook. She's in her 80s now. And yes, as all the critics were telling, she can still sing. And it's not just, oh, how nice, she's 85 years old and she can still hit a note here and there and croak out something. No, she is still a fine singer. Um... If people are saying that she's lost something from her golden years, well, I wasn't seeing her in the 1950s and 60s or 70s. So this is my first time ever actually seeing her on stage. She was walking with a cane. I don't know if that's because of her age or her weight or if she hurt something recently, but certainly in fine spirits, and she has a wonderful attitude. In fact, although I disagree with this in... I disagree with it artistically. I understand her in the sense that she there are songs that she will not sing just because she doesn't agree with the negative mindset. Like she had always wanted to sing the Don McLean song, Vincent. You know, starry, starry night, da-da-da-da-da. It's a beautiful melody, but it's a song about, you know, Vincent van Gogh's suicide. <laughs> and she's just, you know, it's not in her mindset to sing about suicide or sad, depressing things. She wants to sing positive and happy numbers. Okay, you know, great. You know, she, she has earned the right to do that in her life and career. What she has not earned the right to do is to do this big old concert with Michael Feinstein, who is adoring and charming and really great paired with her, is, um, is not to be quite as prepared as she should have been. I mean, she made jokes about um, not having seen the lyrics of something or messing up the lyrics or not knowing if she'll get through the song without screwing up the lyrics. And you want to chalk that up to her old age, but it's not. She's all there. She's fine. And she made a, a remark about, like, the other day she had been flying and traveling for 15 hours because you know, that's travel these days. And it occurred to me, you know... Had you spent at least one of those hours on the plane or the train reading the lyrics again, you wouldn't have had uh, quite so many fumbles. And she, she didn't have that many. But it was just like there was a certain amount of what she was stumbling over that w had nothing to do with anything like age or senility or old time. Or, no, none of that. It was just the fact that she could have prepared a little bit more. She you know, just came on stage. Maybe she did a little bit of vocal warm-ups. But I would say, you know, to, to make it a, a somewhat better show, because it's a really entertaining show, um, you know, next time you do it, 
Decide with Michael Feinstein what songs you're going to sing. Don't let him spring surprises on you. And look over the lyrics for five minutes. <laughs> Take the hour before you get on stage and just skim through. And go, oh, okay, yeah, I got that, I got that, I got that. So um, that, that was my one real criticism. I'm seeing Michael Feinstein and Barbara Cook. But it was nice to see her. Good to, to hear him. And um, also, they had a kid there. I, I don't have, did I write his name? No, but <laughs> but he won this big contest that the Great American Songbook put on for young people to to find the, the next generation of stars who aren't singing all in that American Idol style of big booming voices and big high notes and all this melisma going on and the the Christine Aguilera copying kind of but but of just putting over a song because it isn't about the best voice it's about putting out the best song, really. So that, that was kind of neat to hear. Anyway, it is just about 11.30 in, <clears throat> excuse me, the morning mountain time here at the University of Northern Colorado. I'm Dave Lefkowitz. You're listening to Dave's Gone By on uncradio.com. Got a lot more to do on this episode of the show. We've got a Saturday segue of Tom Lehrer and Tiny Tim songs. No, they didn't sing together. It's just their birthdays coming up this week. And also... Rabbi Saul Solomon will be bidding farewell to movie critic Roger Ebert, and we'll have our Bob Dylan Sooner and Later segment all about meat. Why meat? I'm so glad you asked. Because Rabbi Saul had the opportunity this week to talk to Eric Mittenthal, who is the Vice President of Public Affairs for the American Meat Institute. Yes, Virginia, there is an American Meat Institute, and they're basically... Concerned with making sure that a meat is good and edible in America, and and also how it's marketed, and how we get to Americans to appreciate and eat meat. And since this is now baseball season and the spring, and people are getting their barbecue grills out, and uh, I'm sure in Milwaukee they've got the the hot dog pitcher batting up and, and tossing hot dogs into the stands. With all of that going on. Why not bring Rabbi Saul Solomon into the neighborhood for his conversation with Eric Mittenthal here on Dave's Gone By. I don't think 
that peas are bad? With me, most anything goes. I look in the pot, I'm fit to fight. Cause woman, you know that mess ain't right. All that meat and no potatoes just ain't right like green tomatoes. Yes, I'm steaming, I'm really screaming. All that meat and no potatoes. I'm Eric Mittenthal with the American Meat Institute, sharing my meat with the world, and you're listening to Dave's Gone By with Dave Lefkowitz and Rabbi Saul Solomon on UNC Radio. Everybody, welcome, shalom. This is Rabbi Saul Solomon of Temple, Sons of Bitches in Great Neck, New York. And let me tell you, baseball has begun. It is that time of the year, and when I think of baseball, I think of big, long things, not bats. And not uh, whatever disgusting thing you have in your heads. No, I'm thinking of hot dogs, the great American food. Frankfurter's hot dog. Well, nothing really American about Frankfurter, the name. But we'll ask about this because we have with us in the neighborhood on the phone the vice president of public affairs at the American Meat Institute. This is a man who knows his meat. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm, oh, I'm going to hold it together. I promise, uh, God, I promised God that I would hold it together in this interview. Please welcome Eric Mittenthal. Shalom, Eric. Shalom. So glad to join you. Yes, yes. So, how long? Now, now, what, what interests me is that you haven't always been a meat person. You, you used to be a TV news reporter. Is this true? I did used to be a TV news reporter, but at the same time, I ate so much meat. <laughs> and, and you were not a gay man. We're talking actual cows and pigs and, and chickens. And Correct. Yes. Right. Okay. Just I'm just checking. That's all I'm asking. So, but but really, how did you go from reporting on crime and hurricanes and oh, there's a fire down the block. We better have that on TV because fire always looks good on the news. To firing up a grill. <laughs> Well, uh, TV news doesn't exactly pay the bills, so uh, needed to find something something different. And the meat industry pays the bills, so uh, I made a switch and uh, get to talk about hot dogs and sausage now. Now wait a minute. I'm, I'm, again, I'm sorry for backtracking, but you were an on-camera television reporter. Is this true? This is true. And this did not. What bills do you? What are you buying, Mercedes? I'm buying meat. <laughs> they, uh, it, 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 it's not as it's not as glamorous as it, as it looks to be. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a very tough business, the TV business. I guess it must. I mean, but it was a full time gig with ben, I, I assume with benefits and stuff. I mean, if you're on TV and you're not paying your bills, that just that astonishes me. You know? No, it's it's uh, it's tough. They, they, that's one of the hidden secrets of the, the TV business. They don't pay you a whole lot, especially if you're not a, a main anchor. Right, so if you're just out in the field at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning chasing something down, this they don't pay you for. Right. That's amazing. That's, uh, not, not much. But you went from the reporting into marketing. Was that an easy uh, transition? Yeah, you know, uh, we, we, we both uh, talk and, uh, and, and communicate and, and tell the story of, of what we're trying to tell. And so I went from uh, telling random stories in, in different cities to uh, telling the story of, of meat and hot dogs and sausage. All right. Well, what is the story that you generally tell? I mean, what, what do you tell people about meat? Well, uh, meat's delicious, first of all. Well, 
I can do that. I should have your job. Hey, everybody. Meat is tasty. I love meat. Okay, good. Give me, give me your job. No, tell me more. You know, meat, meat is a cultural phenomenon that brings us together. You know, everybody loves getting together, whether it's at a barbecue or, you know, at their backyard grills, you know, at restaurants. They love to eat meat, hot dog, sausage, steaks, bacon. Um, you know, it's a uh, it's it's an American favorite, and so uh, my job is to uh, to make sure that we're we're telling the the great stories of meat, and uh, particularly these days, hot dogs and sausages. You know, hot dogs and sausages are, uh, despite their foreign origins, the quintessential American food these days. Now, let me ask you, what is the difference? I have wondered about this. Is there a technical difference between a hot dog, a frankfurter, and a sausage? What is it? There, there is a little bit of a difference. It's mostly in uh, the way the meat is ground and the seasonings that are used. Um, you know, certain seasonings are typically used in hot dogs versus sausages, and um, that's kind of where the distinctive uh, differences come in. So, do some places use them interchangeably, or do, or, or is a hot dog a real American sort of Frankfurter thing that we know? Well, the hot dog originally started in in Frankfurt, Germany. Believe it or not, and uh, well, it's a Frankfurt. It should kind yeah. of Americanized. It's 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 become kind of a, the American food because uh, you know Americans have made it their own in terms of uh, putting different things on it, and um, you know, of course, eating it at baseball games, and so uh, it's it, it's it's the American food now more than it than it is the European food. Why do you think that took off? Um, so well in baseball games as opposed to, let's say, hamburger or sushi or uh, you know, noodles. Why the hot dog? Well, hamburger, you have to eat with two hands. Mm-hmm. Sushi, you have to eat with chopsticks. And certainly that's not easy at a baseball game. Noodles, you have to eat with chopsticks or a fork. Hot dog, you hold it in one hand, you take a few bites, and you've, you've got it down. And uh, you have a hand free to, uh, to go for the foul balls as well. Uh, I still think it would be great to have barbecue ribs in in the games. Just have everybody get all sloppy and greasy in the catching them. Then this way, no one could catch a, a baseball because all the kids, the ball would go flying into the stands. Everybody's hands would be covered with barbecue sauce and grease. It would fall on the floor, and a little child would get it. I think that would solve a lot of problems. Would not have that. Uh, what was it? The Bill Buckner incident? No, no, that was the man. I don't even know what the hell I'm talking about. But but let me ask you, Eric Mittenthal of the American Meat. Institute, what are some of the the more eccentric, unusual things that you have heard people put on their frankfurters, on their hot dogs? Well, there's a lot of different things, especially at baseball games uh, these days that the teams are uh, are breaking out for for their hot dogs. Uh, there's a crab mac and cheese dog in, uh, in Baltimore. Yes, and so uh, that's, that's the ultimate non-kosher dog, but. Uh, but uh, no shit. Put crab yeah. on there with Elbow Bay seasoning and mac and cheese as well. It's one of the more unusual ones. In Pittsburgh, they're putting, putting pierogies on hot dogs, which uh, is a good, good, good true Polish tradition. Wait a minute. A pierogi is a little dumpling, right? A, a potato dumpling? That is correct. So they put the, How do they fit this on a hot dog? <laughs> I think they use mini pierogies, but uh, they're able to fit them on there. I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering. And then, of course, there's corn dogs. That's a tradition in, in world fairs and, and county fairs and uh, places like that. What's the... Um, I bands of, of meat on a stick. Meat on a stick is a, uh, a good trend. Now, what is your favorite way to eat a hot dog? 
Well, I'm a southern guy. I'm from Atlanta, and so uh, I like a good, I like a, a hot dog from the varsity down there. Uh, a good chili dog with onions and uh, and mustard's perfect to me. Sounds sounds pretty good. Now, now let me ask you: if, if people were to say, "Okay, what goes into your average hot dog of, of a of a decent variety, of a trustworthy brand? How much is meat, and how much is stuff, and how much is stuff that you really don't want to know?" and zero percent is stuff you don't want to know that's a uh, a common misconception out there and you know the old saying goes there are two things you never want to see being made and that's laws and sausages and living in dc i can vouch for the law part uh i, I don't want to see how those are being made but the sausages uh, are different it's it's a very um it's, it's a pretty straightforward process they're taking uh similar cuts to meat cuts of meat uh that are that are steaks i mean they're taking uh, pieces off those, uh, similar to what they would do for ground beef, uh, and then they uh, blend it together a little bit more fine than you would have in ground beef. They added different seasonings, uh, put it in the casing, and that's a hot dog. Well, I mean, the, the thing is, well, it wouldn't necessarily be all beef unless it said all beef. They will also use uh, pork. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he was, you know, but it's the same idea with pork as well. It's, it's the different pieces off of, uh, off of you know, common pork cuts, and, uh, and that's what would go into a pork dog. It's but the, for a mixture of Always on the label. That's one thing. It's always on the label. So if you're you're getting a uh, pork and beef dog, you would have you would have both of those on the label. If you're getting a turkey dog, uh, same idea. But the, the the thing, the old joke is though that say it is a pork dog, as it were, that they use everything but the oink. You know, it's like yes, that. that's that's the old thing. But that's that's no longer the case. It used to be. So, so the FDA stepped in, or how did it change from you didn't know what was in you know from sawdust to to anything to being a trustworthy, meat-worthy frankfurter? Well, it's it, it's one of those things where I think you know people people had this impression of everything but the oink, and, and they were turned off by it, and so uh, you know companies uh, do everything they can to meet consumer demand, and if consumer demand says we don't want uh, you know everything but the oink, they're going to make sure that it's that it's uh, you know uh, meat that they're used to. Now, how do you reconcile, as a person who represents meat in general in America, reconcile that you have different brands that you particularly like and maybe not like? I mean, maybe you prefer, you know, Nathan's or Hebrew National or something. How do you make everybody happy? Well, we don't. Uh, you know, certainly we 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 work with certain brands, but uh, our job is not to necessarily promote uh, a brand. They have marketing departments for that. We we promote the products, so uh, we want to talk about hot dogs and sausage and meat, and uh, and we're we're talking more generally about the category as opposed to brands. And uh, we recognize that everybody has their individual favorites. Uh, certainly, I do, and I'm sure you do too. And Hebrew uh, National. He's recognize it as well. Isaac Gellis. Oh yes. Yeah. Is, is there a big difference between kosher hot dogs, God bless them, and your basic garden variety Goyesha hot dogs? Uh, the primary difference is uh, kosher hot dogs are all beef. Uh, Non-kosher hot dogs you know, tend to uh, have pork. Doesn't necessarily they they uh, they do, but um, you know, kosher hot dogs will be made from all beef uh, or poultry, and uh, they've been slaughtered. Uh, the meat has been slaughtered according to Jewish law. Um, you know, but they all contain high-quality cuts of meat. One, one, one assumes. One hopes. Now, now let me also ask you about the the uh, the names for these things. I mean, okay, Frankfurter, because they uh, created the thing in Frankfurt, Germany. 
How did hot dog become hot dog? That's that's a, uh, a great mystery. One of the uh, one of the, the the stories around that has to do with baseball, actually. Uh, the the story goes that um, a, the vendors were selling hot dogs, uh, and they were saying, calling them uh, your red hot dogs and sausages. And a reporter at the baseball game heard it, did not know how to spell dogs, so he called them hot dogs. Uh, and that's that's one of the stories about how the uh, the hot dog first came about. But also, then you have the term wieners. So we now think of them uh, with wiener dogs. But in that case, I think the the dachshund is named after the frankfurter rather the, than the other way around. Or is it because it's Vienna sausage? Where, did, where does wiener come from? I think it's probably very similar. Uh, the you know a, a dachshund is kind of known as a wiener dog. So uh, same idea. No, no. But again, is it the dachshund because it might have come from Vienna, Austria, or is the dachshund named after? The hot dog wiener, in that, in which case the wiener is already named uh, the dog. I think the dachshund came first. Okay, well, so, yes, yeah, so, all right. It's a tautological argument, perhaps. <laughs> My brain is smoking at the moment. We're talking, speaking of smoked things and smoked meats, with Eric Mittenthal, vice president of the uh, public affairs at the American Meat Institute. Another question, though. How do you, not just with hot dogs, but how do you counter... The idea that meat, in general, especially red meat, is not good for you. How do you? What do you say back to people who who give legitimate arguments that say we really shouldn't be eating much meat? Well, that's another uh, common myth that's out there. Uh, we actually have a very good website called MeatMythCrushers.com that uh, takes on a lot of these uh, a lot of these myths, including the uh, the hot dogs and sausage, and that meat's not good for you. Uh, you know, these days people are people are looking for food that has that's high in protein. Uh, there's no better food that has, that brings you protein than meat, and so uh, you know, protein is is great for satiety. Uh, it, satiety meaning you, you feel full. Satiety mean, yep, the fuller you feel, it right. helps you feel full. The fuller you feel, the less you're going to eat. And so, uh, you know, meat can contribute to uh, to a healthy diet in that way. And uh, certainly, there are lots of uh, lean cuts of meat that do not uh, do not provide uh, a significant amount of fat in there. Uh, certainly, people uh, are, are worried about uh, the amount of fat. And um, you know, there are there are plenty of cuts out there that are, that are low fat and, uh, and very healthy for you. Well, I think also people with hot dogs specifically are worried about nitrates and things like that. I mean, has that been finessed or removed or do you just say don't eat hot dogs 10 times a day every day and you'll be fine <laughs> well nitrates actually a really interesting uh really interesting topic uh you, you may not know this but uh you get far more nitrate from your diet from vegetables than you ever would from a hot dog and so uh you know hot dogs do contain nitrate as part of the the curing process and um, all cured meats would, would contain that. Uh, but there have been a lot of studies that show that nitrate uh, has health benefits as opposed to, uh, as opposed to being uh, a health hazard. So, um, What benefits do you get from a nitrate? What's that? What benefit do you get from eating a nitrate? Oh, you're getting a little, a little past my expertise okay. on that. <laughs> all right, I'm just wondering. I mean, uh, does it make you a better lover or something like that or what? 
You hope. Well, yes. Yeah, it, it's uh, you know it, it's one of those things that, that contributes to, uh, to to healthy to healthy cells and to healthy function. Um, and so it, it's it's a lot of ongoing research uh, around that area right now, uh, determining uh, exactly what are the, the health benefits of nitrite. And, uh, and let me also ask you, though, what, okay, we, we've countered the people who say that you shouldn't eat much meat. And the, what do you say to, I guess, the, the enemy, as it were, vegans and vegetarians? To try to, to win them over? Or is it sort of like uh, Democrats trying to win the Tea Party over? It's hopeless. Well, we're believers in choice. Uh, you know, if people, if people uh, choose to not eat meat, that's their choice. Uh, you know, they're certainly in the minority, and I uh, can't I can't relate to them. Uh, but you know, that's their choice, uh, and I think we have the choice in this country to uh, eat lots of meat too. And a lot of people like to do that as well. And so, you know, our job is to uh, promote the benefits of meat to people and, and help them understand that you know, meat is a, a delicious, healthy thing for them to be for, to be a part of their diets. Well, let me ask, how often, Eric Mittenthal, do you eat meat over the course of a week? Well, I, I, I eat meat with pretty much every meal. Uh, much at breakfast, because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a, a bagel guy at breakfast, so uh, sometimes maybe a bagel sandwich with, with some sausage on there. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sandwich guy for lunch, so I'll, I'll go get a sandwich or a hot dog or a hamburger or something like that for, for lunch, and then... Uh, you know, give me a piece of steak for dinner. I'm, I'm, I'm set. I'm now as much as I am like you and agree with you. Do you, how's your health? How's your blood pressure? Are you overweight? I mean, I, I don't have you in front of me. I'm wondering how are you? Well, I'm, I'm in great shape. I'm, uh, I'm six foot five. So oh, good No wonder. Didn't have any, have any growth problems? And uh, you know, I'm six five, about 195 pounds. So uh, I think I'm doing pretty well. And you must also, with all the, the meal stuff, do you get to try a lot of different, I mean, are people constantly bringing you new meats to try and new cured things? Not as much new, but we get to try a lot of different brands' products uh, in terms of, of their offerings and, uh, and different sausages and things like that. Yeah, we, we, we definitely get to, uh, to, to eat well here at the uh, American Institute. Well, let me ask you about... Um, I'm not talking about endangered species, but some of the, the meats that would not be as common. I mean, we talk uh, poultry and, and uh, steak and all that and, and pigs, but have you tried and what do you think of some of the more unusual things that they make, you know, steaks out of? In terms of... Uh, In terms of, well, <laughs> zebra... Yeah, some of the more the, the unique things out there these days. You know, yeah. I think that once again goes back to choice. Um, you know, no, but I'm asking your the, your particular. Uh, okay. Have you tried like For my particular? Yeah. Have you tried? I've had buffalo. Uh, buffalo is about the extent of, of what I've gone. I've, I've tried. Uh, I've tried elk before. Um, I think that's pretty much the extent of. Uh, I don't. Re- I don't really like it when it's when it's really gamey. So I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm not an exotic meats guy. Okay, just just because we there is actually in Colorado there's a a sausage place out here that uh, takes great pride in the fact that they make their sausages with these kind of all different elky things and buffalo things and and stuff like that and, and stuff you're like oh my goodness I've never tried that before but the problem is when it's in a sausage there's so much spice on it you're not really tasting whatever the hell you're eating it's just you know sausage. So yeah, yeah. No, I, w- I wouldn't be afraid to try to try any of it, but uh, you know, sometimes it's not as, as tasty as some of the 
Now, are you also involved in po- poultry at the Meek Institute, or is that something else entirely? We do uh, we do turkey. Uh, there's a separate chicken council that uh, they handles. handles and that chicken council, that's wonderful. Yeah. So, so, but Those you know, for everything. Well, when you think about chickens and cows, the other um, charge that has been leveled at the industry is cruelty to animals and the way that they're kept and fed and bred and basically penned in their entire lives, fattened up and then slaughtered. I mean, have you guys responded to this idea that meat is murder? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we actually uh, developed several years ago uh, an animal, animal welfare audit. Uh, all of our companies uh, uh, utilize it to uh, to evaluate their systems to make sure that they are uh, treating animals uh, treating animals well. And uh, the audit was designed by uh, Temple Grandin, who is actually uh, hopefully familiar to uh, to folks there in Colorado. She's a you know a professor at Colorado State University, one of the uh, most world world renowned uh, animal welfare experts. Oh, right, I've heard that name. Yes, honestly, and not just because I always go to Temple. Yes. There's a joke there. Okay, thank you. So, so good. So there are these these things. That, are things changing though? Because you do see the way slaughterhouses are depicted in documentaries, and the way the, the chickens can't move, and the razor wire, and all these horrible. I mean, has there been movement forward over the past ten years? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we we definitely, um, you know, since we've developed the audit, you know, there's been a, a lot of improvement in the way uh, animals are cared for. And, uh, certainly a lot of the videos that you see online uh, from the animal activists are showing you a certain perspective um, that isn't necessarily uh, how how plants are run. And so um, we've actually created uh, a video of, uh, of a beef plant to show exactly how animals are slaughtered at a beef plant. And, uh, that's available on our YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash meatnewsnetwork. So when people are curious about how these things happen, um, and you know how animals are treated. We we are actually able to show it. Well, have, have you moved closer and closer to uh, the kosher style of killing, which us Jews are very proud of? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, kosher kosher is one way uh, to do it, and, and it involves uh, a rabbi being present for the process. Um, you know, it, it just depends on uh, on whether a plant's trying to, uh, to to keep their food kosher or not. Well, it's, it's more than the, the rabbi. It's also about the way, the quickness with which the the slicing and the whatevering is done. I'm assuming, right? Right. right. Yeah, just, it's, just, it's, yeah. it's the way that the animal is, is actually slaughtered. You know, I mean, sometimes they put him in, a, in an electric chair. They read him a story first. It's very, you know, they're trying to be more humane about it. I'm kidding. I'm just, uh, just uh, not gonna laugh there. One, one, one more question uh, or two for Eric Mittenthal of the American Meat Institute. What's the latest news? Whatever happened to Mad Cow? Well, Mad Cow uh, is is uh, hasn't been an issue here in the U.S. It's uh, you know we've taken a lot of steps to uh, to ensure that. Uh, that is not a, an issue here, and so um, we haven't seen, um, you know, any any typical cases of. Uh, there, there was one atypical strain uh, that popped up last year uh, that that researchers believe was um, was anomaly, an, an anomaly that just kind of popped up, um, but it's it has not been a significant issue in the U.S. Um, and, and, and you're not. You guys don't deal with the international. You you are just basically concerned with American beef and American, well, it is the American Meat Cow Institute, so there you go. 
I guess. So some mad cow. And we, and we certainly work with international trade and, uh, and you know, are, are uh, you know, monitoring developments internationally. And, um, you know, in certain parts of the world, it's still, uh, it's still somewhat of a concern. We do not currently import beef from Europe uh, because of concerns over um, BSC or, or mad cow disease. And so, um, you know, but that's something that, that our government monitors very closely and uh, to, you know, to ensure that uh, beef is safe for, for American consumers. So, so, but it's good that we don't have to worry about mad cow because I've seen some pretty angry sheep, which is uh, that's right. There you go. Oh, good! I gotta laugh. That's exciting. So, so, last question for Eric Mignol, and you've been a very good sport. I, I will say, um, what what are some ideas, specific ones in ads or marketing or promos that you guys have used that you've come up with either in commercials or what have you to to say how wonderful meat is. We actually aren't the ones who do the marketing. Uh, there are specific, uh, the, the farmers come together to, to market uh, their specific commodities. So you have uh, a beef group and a pork group and a, uh, and a dairy group there is too. And so uh, their job is to market. Our, our job is to, uh, is to just uh, tell, the, tell the story and uh, make sure people uh, understand what, what meat is and uh, what hot dogs and sausage are. Oh, let me, is there a byproduct? Byproducts group. I'm always kind of curious about what the hell meat byproducts are and what 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 are those and where do they go? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't I don't think there is a byproducts group, although there is a group for everything, so there might be. There might be. Maybe it goes to China. You know. So can I ask you what is it? I know I keep attacking on one extra question, but I keep thinking of these these things. What is it so terrible about? Horse meat. Anytime you watch a thing, is oh, they were using horse meat instead of that. I mean, it's cheaper, I guess. But what's so wrong with using horse meat? Well, horse meat uh, is um, it's it, 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 in the U.S. It is seen as you know horses are seen as uh, pets and uh, friendly animals, and so they are not seen as food here. But uh, in three quarters of the world, uh, horses are seen as uh, a food animal. And so um, for those places where it's culturally acceptable, there's absolutely nothing wrong with horse meat. Um, you know, they, they have uh, their own standards for, for slaughter, and uh, in the U.S. there's just not a demand for it. And so, uh, you know, people don't want it here, and so we don't have horse meat here. And, and not to be cliche, but also in the, the Asian markets, the, the stereotype is that somewhere in there there's dogs and cats. I, I mean... Yeah, no, that is, that is uh, a, a common uh, stereotype. And, you know, in different parts of the world, you know, people eat different parts of the animal. Um, and that's just how, how their culture, uh, you know, handles eating animals. And our culture is a little different. Well, all I can say is when it comes to eating horse, just say nay. I'm sorry. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with the delightful Eric Mittenfall of the American Meat Institute. You had mentioned the website before that had myths about the meat and that, that people can check. Well, what's, what is that site again? It's meatmythcrushers.com. Meat Myth Crushers. So if you want your meat crushed, this is the, well, your, your meat, meat, I don't know what I'm saying. Anywho, Mr. Mittenthal, it has been really a pleasure to talk to you, and I thank you so much for bringing your meat into our lives. My pleasure.
some rock and roll there from John Lennon and uh, Meat City in honor of our guest in the neighborhood, Rabbi Saul Solomon, speaking with Eric Mittenthal of the American Meat Institute. He is a happy hot dog man indeed. And I am a happy man to be here on the radio. It's 12.01 in the afternoon on this April 6th, 2013. I'm Dave Lefkowitz, and the name of the show is Dave's Gone By. We're here every Saturday from 10 in the morning until 1 in the afternoon, Mountain Time on UNC Radio, the radio station of the University of Northern Colorado, also listenable on Channel 3 on your dorm room TVs. And let's see, some of the folks who make this radio station possible, let's see if we have any ads or sponsors to take care of. Um, this, this is confusing me a little bit. There's a job fair at UNC, says, need a job this summer? Want to get paid for having fun? Come find, it, uh, come find out about jobs this summer. And this is happening this Wednesday, April 10th, from 11 until 2 in the afternoon at the uh, University Center in Spruce Ballroom A. Now, okay, that's all seems really clear, except there's um, a the logo, there's a picture here of Elitch Gardens, the theme park. So I don't know if this job fair is solely for Elitch Gardens and for jobs there, or they're just one of the people who are going to be represented with summer jobs at this fair. So, uh, you know, if somebody wants to call in from the station or from the school and let me know, I can give you more information about that. But, hell, if you want a job, certainly we know Elitch Gardens will be there. So that's this Wednesday, April 10th, from 11 in the morning until 2 at the University, bleh, the University Center, pardon me, Spruce Ballroom A. And speaking of sponsorship, this particular radio program, Dave's Gone By, is brought to you in part by the kind auspices of Hewlett Minuteman Press, the copy kings of Broadway. Since the mid-1970s, the Toron family has owned and operated Hewlett Minuteman Press right in the heart of Hewlett, Long Island, New York. They're three blocks from the Hewlett Long Island Railroad train station, right across the street from the Lomans. The reason you should use Hewlett Minuteman? Well, first of all, they do good quality work. Their prices are reasonable, and they turn things around in a reasonable amount of time. And they also do a whole bunch of things. As a matter of fact, they emailed me uh, just the other day. Let me get to my my email. I should have gotten this before. Here we go. Um, I bet you didn't know that we did all these things among the services. Because, you know, they'll do printing and copying, of course. But they'll also do things like T-shirts and postcards and posters and photo napkins, placards, fax service, of course. God, do people still use faxes? Brochures, bookmarks, birth announcements, bindings, embossings, uh, scoring, well, <laughs> I guess they did have a fun Friday night. Uh, stationary things, of course, and wedding invitations, accessories, balloons. Uh, they'll, they'll do your ketubah. I didn't know they could do that. They do rubber stamps, ribbons, letterheads, logos, lunch bags, door hangles, door hangles, <laughs> door hangers, and uh, presumably door handles, too, although it's not on this list. Anyway, they're all at Hewlett Minuteman Press. Call 516-569-5577, 516-569-5577. They'll give you a no-obligation quote 
And if you mention Dave's Gone By, you get 10% off any job, big or small. Again, 516-569-5577. You let Minuteman Press, where quality and attitude make the difference. And making a difference in the life or lives of people who love theater is totaltheater.com, this wonderful free website where you can read reviews of shows that are on or off-Broadway or off-off-Broadway all over the country and all over the world, totaltheater.com. Plus, if you are uh, not only want to see reviews, but if you want to read interviews and articles about the theater all over the globe, that's at totaltheater.com, too. And you can spell it any way you want to, E-R or R-E, totaltheater.com. Now, Total Theater is also the parent company of Performing Arts Insider, which has been the Bible of Broadway since 1944. It's the place where people in the entertainment industry turn to find out the little inside important information that they need to know. For example, how you contact a playwright who's on Broadway, or a designer, or the producer, or the agents, or the composer, the lyricist. It's all in the pages of Performing Arts Insider. You get the numbers and the emails of press agents and producers and managers and sometimes direct uh, contacts for the actors and the writers themselves and the designers too. And not only that, there's chronological, sorry, mm, talking too fast, Chronological listings for all the shows that are happening in cabaret, opera, dance, awards, and special events. So there's any little thing you need to know about theater in New York. Performing Arts Insider is the place to turn, and those are the pages to turn. For more information, go to performingartsinsider.com. But remember, I did say pages. This is a hard copy Magazine. You actually get it in the mail. You can put it on your desk. You know, people say, well, why, why don't they just go on the web like everything else? And, and who knows? Maybe one day they will. But for now, people still like every once in a while having a magazine, something you can hold in your lap and, and fold over the page and fold down the page corner and circle and do. You know, it, it's a physical thing. And you get it in the mail, and people who get it have gotten it for years and swear by it. They love it. It's the Bible of Broadway, Performing Arts Insider. Again, for more info, performingartsinsider.com. And lastly, just want to give a quick shout-out to Jeff Goodman, owner and proprietor of Fancy Schmancy Balloons, 516-799-0012 for all your party decorating needs in the tri-state New York area, 516-799-0012. And uh, go check Jeff's work out. Well, it's 12.08 in the afternoon time for our weekly Bob Dylan Sooner and Later segment where we play songs from all different periods of Dylan's career. So our topic continuing is Meat. Found some songs by Bob Dylan, sung by Bob Dylan, that somewhere in the song you will find allusions or, or direct reference to Meat. Um, I'm, I'm just giving you one moment to kind of to think for yourself. Maybe you can come up with one or two that we're going to play, if you know the songs. Okay, well, let, let's get a rolling. We'll start with one of the later albums, Love and Theft, going back, I guess, about ten years now. This is Honest With Me.
from the disease of conceit. Give your delusions a grandeur and an evil eye. Give you the idea that you're too good to die. Then they bury you from your head to your feet from the disease of conceit.
Reside in Texas And his name is Diamond Joe He carries all his money In a diamond studded jaw Never took much trouble With the process of the law Diamond Joe boys did offer him my hand He gave me a string of horses So old they could not stand And I nearly starved to death But he did mistreat me so And I never saved a dollar in a pay of diamond Joe I was bred and was corn dodger And his meat he couldn't chomp Nearly drove me crazy With the wagging of his jaw And the telling of your story Mean to let you know That there never was a rounder That could lie like Diamond Joe Three times to quit him But he did argue so I'm still punching cattle In the pay of Diamond Joe And when I'm called up yonder And it's my time to go Give my blankets to my buddy Give the fleece to Diamond
nothing to eat. I'm hungry as a hog. So I get brown rice, seaweed, and a dirty hot dog. I got a hole where my stomach disappeared. Your uncle steals And you ask why I don't live here Hey, I can't believe it's your for real Well, there's fist fights in the kitchen Enough to make me cry He's got something to prove A somewhat earlier version there of the uh, Bob Dylan and Basement Tapes tune with the band Yay Heavy and A Boggle of Bread here on Dave's Gone by the Bob Dylan Sooner and Later segment devoted to meat. So in that set, if you'll follow along with me on our Facebook page, Radio Dave Lefkowitz, you will find that we started up top with Honest With Me from the Love and Theft record, and Honest With Me has the line, The meat is so tough you can't cut it with a sword. 
We followed that with the biograph version of Quinn the Eskimo, a.k.a. the Mighty Quinn, the song that maybe some people don't realize that Bob Dylan wrote, uh, Manfred Mann, make it more famous. But in Quinn the Eskimo, of course, there's a line about Ain't My Cup of Meat, Dylan then doing Disease of Conceit, which is from the Oh Mercy collection, Turn You Into a Piece of Meat. We followed that with one of my favorite songs off the very underrated Planet Waves album, and that was Tough Mama, the line, Tough Mama, meat shaken on your bones, followed by Diamond Joe, through a little curve for you there, from Good As I Been To You. Here it's And His Meat You Couldn't Chaw. And so we also did On The Road Again from Bringing It All Back Home, and that has the line, and a dirty hot dog. So, so we did get the hoppy hot dog man into that Dylan set, and we closed the sooner and later set with Yay Heavy and a bottle of bread, which has the line, pack up the meat, sweet, we're heading out. Well, we're not heading out yet of this episode of Dave's Gone By. i got about 20 minutes or so left in the show with more to do, but first I want to uh, thank as ever, the friends of the neighborhood. These are the folks who have been on the program at one point or another in our ten and a half years, and we like to keep tabs on them. We think of them as family and let you know what they're doing. So, reminding you that the group Riders in the Sky just finished recording a new CD with Wilfred Brimley. Uh, yep, I'm, I'm not making this up. It's called Home on the Range, and they're releasing it by mail order this month. So check them out, Riders in the Sky. Have a few more weeks to catch Danny Burstyn in Tally's Folly, that lovely Lanford Wilson play that they're uh, reviving off-Broadway at the Laura Pills Theater that's playing through May 5th. On today, uh, tonight actually, in New York, Gary Lucas will be playing at Joe's Pub, 425 Lafayette Street, with guest vocalist Jan Close. Go to joespub.com for more information about that. And then tomorrow, David Bromberg is at the Emelin Theater in Mamaroneck, New York. And then starting next week, Christine Petty on Broadway in Chicago. She's going to be playing Mama Morton. You know, that was, um, was, it was Queen Latifah in the movie, right? So, so now it's Christine Petty on Broadway. Yay for her. And then on April 9th, the, um, the new album by Dawes drops. It's stories that don't end. We had Dawes bass player Wiley Gilber on the show a year or so ago. And hey, what, what could be cooler? We just got through with our Bob Dylan set, and Dawes has been opening for Bob Dylan on several cities of his recent tour. And let's see, April 10th through the 13th, you can catch Linda Edder at 54 Below. Uh, she's doing two shows 7 and 9.30, 54 below is 254 West 54th Street. And then on April 14th, Dan Byrne is at the Walnut Room right here in Denver. Oh, okay, yay, it's a local show. So for more information about that, go to thewalnutroom.com. Moving, uh, let's see, to other things. Okay, those are, those are the more, um, shall we say, temporal Items For things that are ongoing, I would like to tell you to listen to Dave Kenny's Everything Old is New Again, Sunday nights on WBAI Radio in New York, 99.5 FM or at WBAI.org. Dr. Demento still doing his radio show, but on the Internet only at DrDemento.com. Alan Scherstuhl and his, um, he is now the film editor 
at The Village Voice. So read The Voice for his film reviews. Jim Caruso's cast party every Monday night at Birdland. Carrie Hoffman still doing My Sinatra at Sophia's on West 46th Street in Manhattan. John Davidson still in The Fantastics at the Snapple Theater Center. Speaking of the Snapple Center, Catherine Russell still playing in perfect crime years and years and years. Go see her. And now through the end of June, The Accidental Pervert with Andrew Goffman extended now and perhaps forever at the 13th Street Theater on 50 West 13th Street. And finally, Addicted to Show Business, the stand-up comedy show by Dave Koenig, plays Wednesdays at the St. Luke's Theater in New York. So thank you to all of the friends in the neighborhood. Thank you also to Rabbi Saul Solomon for uh, interviewing Eric Mittenthal of the American Meat Institute before. That, that's uh, really cool. But Rabbi, Rabbi is not done yet. He has more to do on this episode of the program. In fact, he has prepared his weekly rabbinical reflection, and it's all about, well, the rather sad passing of Roger Ebert. He was the, the movie critic in all our lives. You know, agree or disagree with him. He was clear. He went, well, you know what? I'm not going to give my eulogy for him. Let Rabbi Saul Solomon eulogize Roger Ebert in his own particular way. So here, without further ado, the one, the only, the Jewish Rabbi Saul. <laughs> Shalom, damn it! This is Rabbi Saul Solomon with a rabbinical reflection for the week of April 7, 2013. Hail and farewell to the respected, prolific, and popular film critic Roger Ebert. On Thursday, April 4th, two days after saying he wanted to take things a little slower, he instead came to a complete halt, with cancer doing him in at age 70. Anyone who loves movies is going to miss Roger Ebert. Not just because he warned you what was a stinker before you laid down your $6, and then $10, and now $19, or $25 if you throw in popcorn. And not just because Roger could talk intelligently without being patronizing, something I haven't mastered in 53 years. And not just because Roger's love for good movies came through even when he pooped on bad ones. The biggest legacy of Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel was in remaking the idea of what is a critic. Admit it, before those two, you probably thought of a movie or theater critic as this dreary, sepulchral Ichabod Crane type with that Bostonian accent, his nose in the air, and his pen in someone's back. He was better than you, and he sure let you know it. Or he talked so far over your head, sparrows would crash into his verbs on their way to Capistrano. But not Roger and Jean. Of course, they were smart, but they were next-door neighbor smart, not nuclear physicist smart. And when they explained why Blake Edwards was a genius and dead teenager films are a scourge, even if you didn't agree... You appreciated their conviction and knew they were treating you like a grown-up. Roger may have won a Pulitzer, but he never came off like a pudknocker. Oh, sure, 
Ebert's weight made him an easy target for many years. At one point, he was so out of shape, it seemed a miracle he could even lift his thumb. And then he had to give up TV because of the big C. The first time I saw a picture of him after all those operations, my jaw dropped. Well, not as low as his, but it was still a shock. And yet, he continued to write. A man who came of age in a time of typewriters and telexes kept himself relevant in our age of tweets and tablets. In fact, he posted more movie reviews last year than he did any year before that. If I had to give that many sermons in a year, my brain would turn to gefiltefish. And if my cranium did become an amalgam of whitefish, pike, sawdust, and carp, would I have the guts Roger Ebert had in being so visible, of going on Oprah with his new voice, or on the internet with his fake chin? If I get a pimple on my nose, I hide for three days. Among the many quotable quotes of Roger Ebert, he once said that your intellect may be confused, but your emotions will never lie to you. Well, I may not be able to follow another Charlie Kaufman movie, but I'm sad that we lost Roger Ebert. I think of Gene Siskel in heaven, waiting all these years for the day he could go, all right, no cameras, no censors, Rog, let's really talk about cop and a half. Go at it, guys. No one did it better. This has been a rabbinical reflection from Rabbi Sal Solomon, Temple Sons of Bitches in Great Neck, New York. Hello, my dear friends. Well, here I am on record at last. And it feels so wonderful to be here with you on my first album. Things that bother you never bother me. Things that bother you never bother me. I feel happy and fine, ha Living in the sunlight, loving in the moonlight, having a wonderful time. Having got a lot, I don't need a lot. Coffee's only a dime. Living in the sunlight, loving in the moonlight, having a wonderful time.
Isn't this a lovely band? I really have a yen To go back once again Back to the place where no one wears a frown To see once more those super special Just plain folks in my hometown No fellow could ignore The little girl next door She sure looked sweet in her first evening gown Now there's a charge for what she used to give for free In my hometown On the corner he was Never mean or ornery He was swell He killed his mother-in-law And ground her up real well And sprinkled just a bit Over each banana split The guy that taught us math Who never took a bath Acquired a certain measure of renown And after school he sold the most amazing pictures in my hometown That fellow was no fool who taught our Sunday school And neither was our kindly Parson Brown I guess I better leave this line out just to be on the safe side In my hometown And though it seems a pity it was so He loved to burn down houses just to watch the glow And nothing could be done Because he was the mayor's son The guy that took a knife And monogrammed his wife Then dropped her in the pond And watched her drown Oh yes indeed the people there Are just plain folks in my hometown You know, I'd like to introduce you to my little friend, Mickey the Monkey. I'm Mickey the Monkey, the pride of the zoo. I make people happy with tricks that I do. I swing through the Just like the man on the flying trapeze I hang by my tail all the children to please Grown-ups enjoy watching me catching fleas While you're watching me, I am watching you too You're as funny to me as I am to you I'm Mickey the monkey, the pride of the zoo I'm Mickey the monkey, the pride of the zoo I make people happy with tricks that I do I swim through the air with the greatest of ease Just like the man on the flying trapeze I hang by my tail all the children to please Grown-ups enjoy watching me catching fleas While you're 
as funny to me as I am to you. I'm Mickey the monkey, the pride of the zoo. Ooh, ooh. Turn a can into a cane. Who can turn a pan into a pain? It's not too hard to see, it's silent E. Who can turn a cub into a cube? Who can turn a tub into a tube? It's elementary for silent E. He took a pin and turned it into a pine. Took a twin and turned him into twine. Who can turn a cap into a cape? Who can turn a tap into a tape? A little glob becomes a globe instantly. If you just add silent E, he turned a damn alakazam into a dame. But my friend Sam stayed just the same. Who can turn a man into a man? Who can turn a van into a vein? A little hug becomes huge instantly. Don't add W, don't add X, and don't add Y or Z. Just add silent E. Saying I won't be around this year. I'm a bit sick. Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year. And he won't be round to spread his Christmas cheer. The reindeer all look blue. They know what he's going through. Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year. He won't be yelling out, ho, 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 ho. But he'll be screaming out, no, 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 no. He's lying sick in bed. Call the doctor there instead. Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year. Each season he is full of pep and vim. But now the AIDS have got the best of him. The nurses all look sad, cause Santa's got it bad. Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year. Oh, this is Santa Claus saying, I won't be here this year. I'm sick in bed with the AIDS. Oh, but I'll be back next year, next year. Don't cry for me, a doctor will cure me. There'll be no jingle bells upon his sleigh. From everyone he's got to stay away. Twelve months to wait and then 
he'll soon be round again. But Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year. Oh, I'll miss you all, but I'll see you next year. Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year. And he won't be round to spread his Christmas cheer. The reindeer all look blue, yeah, they know what he's going through. But Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year. There'll be no jingle bells upon his sleigh. From everyone he's got to stay away. Twelve months to wait and then he'll soon be round again, but Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year. I said Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year. I said Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year. Another big news story of the year concerned the ecumenical council in Rome known as Vatican II. (laughs) Among the things they did in an attempt to make the church more commercial (laughs) was to introduce the vernacular into portions of the mass to replace Latin and to widen somewhat the range of music permissible in the liturgy. But I feel that if they really want to sell the product in... uh, in this secular age, what they ought to do is to redo some of the liturgical music in popular song forms. I have a modest example here. It's called The Vatican Rag. First you get down on your knees, fiddle with your rosaries, bow your head with great respect and genuflect, genuflect, genuflect. Whatever steps you want, if you have cleared them with the pontiff, everybody say his own Kyrie eleison, doing the Vatican rag. Get in line in that processional, step into that small confessional, there the I'll tell you if your sin's original If it is, try playing it safer Drink the wine and chew the wafer Two, four, six, eight Time to transubstantiate So get down upon your knees Fiddle with your rosaries Bow your head with great respect And genuflect, genuflect, genuflect Make a cross on your abdomen When in Rome, do like a Roman Ave Maria, gee, it's good to see you Getting ecstatic and sort of dramatic And doing the Vatican The two most controversial and offensive songs by our two birthday people here 
in the neighborhood. Tom Lehrer and Tiny Tim, both of them having birthdays this week. Uh, Tiny Tim, of course, not alive anymore. He died back in 1996. I can't even believe it was that long ago. But he would have turned 81 years old on uh, April 12th. So it would have been this week, it would have been 81. And so we heard in that Saturday Segway birthday set a couple of songs from Tiny Tim, Living in the Sunlight, Loving in the Moonlight, Having a Wonderful Time from Tiny Tim's very first album, and then uh, played a children's song of his called Mickey the Monkey, and also that marvelously deranged and offensive song, Santa Claus Has Got the AIDS This Year. And, And he tried to pass it off and say that he really didn't know back when he did it, that AIDS was this horrible scourge and it was killing, you know, hemophiliacs and gay people, but he thought it was just about the AIDS candy. Uh, There was was a weight-reducing candy that people were taking, and he thought it was making them sick. I I don't know what the hell to believe with Tiny Tim. He was out of his mind, but that is a great, great number. And as far as Tom Lehrer, the great Tom Lehrer is alive. And as far as I know quite well, he turns 85 on April 9th. I guess that's uh, that's this Tuesday. So happy birthday to Tom Lehrer. I tried to get him on this show a couple of years ago, but he wasn't doing any more uh, press or media. And so I honor him by playing a couple of his songs, My Hometown, and uh, the children's song that he did, one of them for the electric company on TV called Silent E. Just listening to that, remembering how brilliant he has been um, so much of the time. And also... We heard the Vatican rag in honor, I guess, of the the election of the new pope. We're going to go out with one more Tom Lehrer song, kind of appropriate, you know, for for things getting older and gerontological. Before I let you go, I do want to thank you all for listening, reminding you that we'll be here next Saturday, 10 until 1 in the afternoon, with a brand new episode of Dave's Gone By. To hear all the older episodes, remember you can go to davesgoneby.com, D-A-V-E-S-G-O-N-E-B-Y. Dot com. If you want to drop me an email, davesgongby at aol.com is the way to do it. Oh, and also, big thank you to Eric Mittenthal of the American Meat Institute. Thank you to Rabbi Saul Solomon. Shalomdammit.com is his website. Shalom, D-A-M-M-I-T, shalomdammit.com. And there's clips to all his, his links and his blog and his YouTube stuff. Definitely check all of that out. And so it's almost 1 o'clock. Time to go out with a little bit of Tom Lehrer telling us how things will be when you are old and gray. The most popular type of popular song is, of course, the love song. And I like to illustrate several subspecies of this form during the evening. First of all, the type of love song where the fellow tells the girl that although the years ahead will almost certainly destroy every vestige of her already dubious charms, (laughs) that nonetheless his love for her will shine on forever through the years, you know? Another example of stark realism in the popular song. (laughs) This particular example is called When You Are Old and Gray, and I'd like to dedicate it to anyone in the audience who is still in love with each other. Since I still appreciate you, let's find love while we may. Because I know I'll hate you when you are old and gray. So say you love me here and now, I'll make the most of that. Say you love and trust me, for I know you'll disgust me when you're old and getting fat. (laughs) 
mass and utility, a loss of mobility is a strong possibility. In all probability, I lose my virility, and you your fertility and desirability. And this liability of total sterility will lead to hostility and a sense of futility. So let's act with agility while we still have facility, for we'll soon reach senility and lose the ability. Your teeth will start to go, dear. Your waist will start to spread. In 20 years or so, dear, I'll wish that you were dead. I'll never love you then at all the way I do today. So please remember when I leave in December, I told you so in May.